Okay, anyway, Daniel chapter 9. Like I said, we've been looking at the prophetic portion of the book, and uh, the last half of it is predominantly uh, prophetic. And we said that the importance of studying prophecy is that uh, we learn to, we learn to uh, uh, appreciate that God is in control. We see that he is laying out in his word what he's going to do ahead of time. Uh, and we see in books like Daniel that the prophecies that he gives out are very uh, thorough, very accurate, very detailed, and he fulfills them to the letter. And it was something that man couldn't predict, they couldn't foresee, that it isn't something that is made up by them or made happen by them, but it has to be someone who has greater knowledge than any man. And so we see that God is in control, and we see that he gives us a, a little bit of an idea of what, things are going to happen and how things are going to unfold. He doesn't uh, fill in all of the details, but he gives us enough to show that he's in control. And not only that, it's not just to know that he's in control or to see the way things are going to be going, but as we study prophecy and see the way that it is fulfilled, it increases our faith. Uh, the Bible says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And as we go through the word of God and we see the things that are contained therein, uh, we can't help but see the prophecies and see how God has chosen to fulfill those and know that this book that we hold in our hands is more than just a, uh, a human uh, uh, concoction or a uh, creation out of man's own mind, but instead we have a faith in God's word that it is really what it says that it is. It's not uh, not anything but the very word of God. We have uh, increased faith in God as we see him uh, moving nations and empires and causing things to happen. And uh, we see that he's in control of things. And so we learn to trust him, his word, his will, his plans, all these different things. And uh, we said last week that in prophecy, it mainly deals with judgment and deliverance. A lot of people get tied up in the idea that prophecy is foretelling the future but prophecy tends to just uh, focus on those two things. It's the dealing with God and his people. And so he starts revealing uh, what's going to happen if his people don't do uh, what they were supposed to do in the Old Testament in Israel and what's going to happen to them. And he gives them a chance to turn away from their sins and whatnot. If they don't turn away from their sins, he tells them what's going to happen. And then after uh, his chastisement and things befalls them, he delivers them. So he tells the Israelites all throughout the Old Testament, I have chosen you. I have a plan for you. I have a love for you. And as you're going astray like children do, sometimes I'm going to have to allow things to come to correct you and to chastise you. But still, I love you. Still, you're mine. And I'm not going to cast you off forever. After the punishment is over, I'm bringing you back to myself. Okay? just as a parent don't banish their child away forever just because they disobeyed. Uh, and so we see this uh, idea of uh, reconciliation between God and his people, this uh, idea of deliverance from their chastisements, their judgments. And so as we've looked at Daniel so far, uh, God has revealed the progression of Gentile world empires. And we saw that this began with when Israel was carried away captive into Babylon in Daniel's lifetime, and God revealed all the way from whenever uh, the Gentiles started reigning over Israel to when God comes, when Jesus reigns over Jerusalem once again. And so this time period that we're looking at here is what's often referred to as the time of the Gentiles, the time that the Gentiles are reigning over God's people until, as I said, Jesus is going to come and rule and reign over the world from Jerusalem. And so last week, what we saw was in Daniel's vision of the goat and the ram, that the power was going to transition in the Gentile world empires from the east to the west, from Asia to Europe, basically. And so that went from the Persians to, uh, to the Greeks, and then eventually it would go to the Romans. And so this is that transition that happened, and it was going to happen some 200 years after Daniel. And so Daniel was only at the very beginning of the Persian Empire, of the Medo-Persian Empire. And this transition over to Greece was going to be far into the future. And we are looking at it in history now. But today, when we get to chapter number nine, we're going to see that 
it kind of, I guess we could say it even divides up the prophetic portion of it. There's a little bit of a change here. Daniel's not having a dream or a vision in the first part of chapter number nine. Instead, Daniel is praying. And we know from what we've seen already in the book of Daniel that he was a man of prayer. And we find that whenever they made praying illegal, he continued to pray. But now we're going to get a little bit of a sneak peek into his prayer and what it was that he prayed. And so let's go ahead and read Daniel chapter number 9. We're going to read down to verse number 19. Kind of a, a natural uh, uh, break there in the passage. So we'll just read down to there. And so Daniel chapter number 9, it says in verse 1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto, the, unto us is confusion of faces, as at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off, uh, through all the countries whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespass that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words, which he spake against us, and against our judges that judged us, by bringing upon us a great evil, for under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works, which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. And now, O Lord our God, that hast uh, brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and hast begotten be, excuse me, hast gotten thee renowned as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Our Lord, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for, our, for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore, O our God, uh, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O oh my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, uh, but for thy great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O oh my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. And so in chapter 9, we have Daniel's prayer that he prays here. And just to give a little bit of a context in what we read, uh, and then I'll explain a little bit about what we read, because 
just reading over it, you might look at it and say, okay, uh, I'm a little bit confused by the things that he has said, uh, maybe a little bit difficult to understand, but we'll get to it in just a minute because it's actually fairly simple. But I want to get into the context of this and where we're at in history and what's going on in Daniel's life, okay? And so for, for that, we find that Daniel lives from the end of Jeremiah's ministry to the beginning of Ezra the prophet's ministry, okay? He lived throughout the Babylonian captivity from the time they were carried away captive till the time that the decree for them to return to Jerusalem back to Israel occurred. So his ministry uh, spanned the entire 70 years of captivity. If you were to put uh, the book of Daniel in, uh, in where it belongs in uh, Scripture, because we found out earlier on that the prophets and Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, all of those are kind of an appendix onto the Old Testament. We find that uh, from Genesis to um, Nehemiah, basically, were um, your historic books. It told you the history of the nation of Israel. And so up until the end of Second Chronicles, you find that it tells about Israel being carried away captive into Babylon. But then at the end of Second Chronicles, it tells about when Cyrus the king uh, gives the decree for the people to return out of captivity. And so uh, Daniel occurs in all of the things that we're reading about in the last chapters of the book of Second Chronicles. Okay, And then we find in the beginning of Ezra, Ezra is the story of the rebuilding of the temple after the uh, captivity. And then Nehemiah is the, the story of the rebuilding of the walls after the captivity. So if you were to put all the prophets and whatnot into their proper place in the historical portion of the scripture, it would occur between Second uh, Kings and, uh, and Ezra. That's where it would occur historically. Uh, but getting into Daniel's life, we know that he was carried away into captivity as a teenager. He was carried away into captivity as a teenager, and very early on, uh, he made a decision. He decided that he wouldn't defile himself, that he was going to commit to uh, living a righteous life, living by the, the commandments of God in a way that was pleasing to God. And as a result of that, God decided to bless him and to prosper him, to give him wisdom. And Daniel quickly became a shining star amongst uh, his peers there in Babylon and was promoted to the place of a counselor of what we would consider a wise man in Babylon. And as he was in that position, we find that uh, not long afterward, uh, maybe whenever he was around 20 or early 20s, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. No one could interpret that dream. We read about that in Sunday School back several weeks ago. No one could interpret that dream. He was going to slaughter all of his wise men. And Daniel says, give me a chance, give God a chance. And Daniel interprets the dream uh, by, uh, by God's grace. And so as he interprets this dream, he's endeared himself to Nebuchadnezzar. He has uh, thrusted himself basically to the top of the heap. He is now one of the greatest of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, advisors there. He's uh, promoted within the kingdom, but this all occurred whenever he was around 20 years old, okay? And as we're reading through the book of Daniel, we have the idea that things happen in rapid succession. We know the story of uh, Daniel with the, the interpretation of the dream and the handwriting on the wall and the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den, and it just seems like it's action-packed one right after another. But what we find out is that this is actually spread out over Daniel's entire lifetime. By the time we're reading here in uh, Daniel chapter number 9, uh, he would have been somewhere around 80 years old. Okay, So this was a big change from whenever he was a teenager, making a decision that he was going to live by God's principles. Now at 80 years old, he has done that throughout his entire life. But as we go back to where I was a minute ago, his early 20s, he interprets a dream. Then we get up to time he's probably around maybe 50 years old, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the one that uh, had another dream. And it was the dream about the tree that grew up and uh, provided shade to the whole earth and then was cut down and kept sure with the, the bronze band and different things. And once again, Daniel interpreted that dream. But it was some probably 30 years later when he interpreted that dream. It wasn't back to back. 
And so the interpretation of the dream was that Nebuchadnezzar was going to go nuts. He was going to uh, be thrown out of the palace, that he was going to graze in the field like an animal and lose his mind for seven years. And then he was going to be brought back to his throne. And so he had another year before this happened. So if he would have been around 50, 55, another year, and then that happened in Nebuchadnezzar, there was another seven years. And this is going to put Daniel up close to 60 years old, isn't it? And so after that extra seven years, uh, the king comes back, he reigns for a few more years, and then he dies. And Daniel's still there, he's still working behind the scenes and still has a place there in the kingdom. But anyway, uh, there is a little bit of a battle for power that takes place. And we talked about how Nabonidus, uh, the king's son-in-law, one that was married to Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, ends up becoming the next ruler, the successor to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't really care much for ruling and for uh, being the one in charge, so he is co-regent with his son, Belshazzar. And we've been reading a little bit about him. Belshazzar reigned for about 10 years. And it tells us in, whenever Daniel had his first dream uh, of the four beasts and uh, talking about the four different world empires, that that would have been in the first year of Belshazzar. So that puts Daniel being up in, uh, up in the later years of his life. By this time, he would have been uh, in his 70s, I believe. And he has this first dream. Do we usually put uh, his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and his prophetic dreams that far apart? We don't usually think of it spanning that full lifetime, right? So he's now up in his 70s. He has his first dream in the first year of Belshazzar. Then in the third year of Belshazzar, he has the dream about the ram and the goat that we looked at last, last week, right? And so just reading through Daniel, you read the dream about the four beasts. And then in the following chapter, you read the dream about the ram and the goat, right? And so you think almost that they took place in successive nights or successive weeks, not three years apart. So anyway, he has this dream, and then you don't hear anything from him for another seven years. And after that seven years, Belshazzar is having his party, and the hand writes on the wall, and that is the final night of Belshazzar and his kingdom. He's been weighed in the, the balance and found wanting. And so the Medes and the Persians come in, kill him that night, and then Daniel now has a new boss, right? There's a new, new uh, sheriff in town, as you could say. And so in putting all this together, that brings us to where Daniel is around 80 years old now. And those four or five uh, events that are recorded in Scripture are ones that are dispersed throughout the length of his lifetime, not ones that are happening in successive order. So this isn't like a daily occurrence or whatnot. But Daniel has spent all this time in Babylon. Uh, at this time, it's been about 66 years in Babylon. And as he has considered all of these things, he was troubled. Uh, the Bible says that his mind was troubled at the first vision. Then his body was troubled at the second vision. He was sick for some time. And then those last seven years that we were talking about, it seems as if he was pouring over the prophecies of Jeremiah. He was looking through scriptures. He was studying things out. He was trying to make sense of all of this because it had had a, a profound impact on him, these visions that God had given him. He was grieved to know that even though this captivity wasn't going to be forever, that there was going to be future oppressions. There's going to be future captivities. Uh, in the two dreams that we saw, uh, there was going to be the Antichrist that was going to oppress and really cause much damage and harm in the nation of Israel. There was going to be Antiochus Epiphanes we looked at last week. And he's going to cause the temple to be desolate, that he's going to desecrate the altar, that he's going to uh, chase the people of Israel and oppress them for a time. All of these different things. And so Daniel is troubled that he wants to see God make things right. He wants to see uh, the Messiah that was promised come. He wants to see Jesus ruling and reigning, but he knows that the Gentiles' time is going to be long and there's going to be multiple oppressions and multiple problems. And so he's trying to figure out, he's trying to put all this together, work it all out in his mind. And that brings us to where we're at in Daniel 9 in the first couple of verses here. Verse 1, he tells us 
uh, the time that this was, first year of Darius the king, and this is a different Darius than what we find. It says Darius the, the son of Ahasuerus. We think of Ahasuerus being the uh, husband of Esther, right? But you got to remember that Ahasuerus was a Persian. This one's a Mede. Two different guys, same name. Okay? But anyway, verse 2 says, In the first year of his reign, I understood the books by the number of the years. And so he says, I've been looking through the prophecies of Jeremiah. And at the end of verse number 2, it says, 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. He's going through the books of Jeremiah, all the prophecies that were being uh, foretold. And he came to the conclusion that Jeremiah, before uh, the people of Israel were carried away captive, before Babylon invaded, he prophesied to the people that this captivity was going to last 70 years. And I said there just a moment ago, Daniel's now been in captivity 66 years. So that would be interesting to Daniel, right? He's looking around. He says, according to the prophecies, there's only a few more years of this left. He's up as an old man. He's close to the end of his life. And he says, it's not much longer before Israel is supposed to go back to the promised land. But there was a problem with that. The problem that he had with that is he was looking around to his fellow Jews in Babylon. None of them had repented. God talked about how they're going to go for chastisement. They're going to go for correction. And afterward, he was going to bring them back out. But it didn't seem like they were getting any closer to turning back to God than when they were carried away captive. Then on top of that, it didn't seem like the leadership and the ones who were ruling and reigning in Babylon at that time were any closer to letting the people go. He's now changed and transitioned past the Babylonian Empire. It's been conquered. It's the first year of the Medo-Persian Empire uh, ruling over the people of Israel. But it's a new empire, but they're not going to be releasing people to go back home anytime soon. So in Daniel's mind, he's troubled. He says, God, the people aren't getting right. The people who have us in captivity don't look like they're going to release us, but your word says 70 years. And so in our minds, we tend to think of Daniel as being uh, a spiritual giant. We think of him being this great, a mighty man of God, this great prophet. He could see plainly what God was doing, and he knew what the, the times were, and he knew what was going on. But Daniel's looking at this, and he's saying, God, it doesn't make sense to me. He's looking at it and saying, God, I know what you said, but I just can't see it happening. And with that, we can relate to that, can't we? You ever read the Word of God and say, okay, God, I know you said it, I know your word's true, but I just don't see it. Or I don't understand it. I don't see how this could work. Uh, you ever take a challenge of God's word or promise of his word and say, okay, God, I know your word says it, but I'm not so sure about it. This is where Daniel was at this time. He says, I realize it says 70 years. And let's go ahead and turn back to Jeremiah chapter number 25, just to see what Daniel had been, uh, had been reading. Jeremiah chapter number 25 and verse number 11 I'll go ahead and go back to verse number 10. It says, Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the candle. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That's plain enough, isn't it? Not a whole lot of interpretation. So he's reading Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah was the one... Uh, his life would have overlapped Daniel's. And so Daniel may have even met Jeremiah. I don't know. But Jeremiah would have been an old man whenever Daniel was a young man. And Jeremiah had warned the people of Israel for years, turn back to God or God's going to send you into captivity. And then they passed the point of no return. He said, God's going to send you into captivity. It's going to be for 70 years. He's going to bring you out. And this is what we read in chapter 25, verse 11. You flip over a couple more pages to chapter 29. Down to verse number four, it says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build ye houses and dwell in them, and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. 
Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased, uh, increased there, not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives. And pray unto the Lord uh, for it, for uh, in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which you have caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. And so two times in the book of Jeremiah, it was prophesied 70 years and you'll come out of this. So Daniel got these visions, these dreams of his. He started studying through the scriptures and understanding them. He came to the prophecies of Jeremiah and he says, the Bible clearly says we're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. I've been here for almost 70 and it doesn't look like deliverance is coming anytime soon. And so with that, uh, he begins his prayer toward God. Okay, so this has given us the background. This has given us understanding of what his prayer is about. And so in verse number three, he says that I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer. And so this is him saying that I prepared myself. I didn't just come to God haphazardly, but I was preparing my mind and my heart to pray unto the Lord. And whenever we come to the Lord in prayer, I believe that we should be praying uh, intelligently, that we should uh, prepare our hearts and our minds to seek him. It's not some kind of a big process or some kind of a, a big uh, uh, ceremony that we have to go through. But I believe that uh, as we're coming to God, we should be doing it uh, and giving our full attention to it. Here it says that he... Uh, came by supplications and fasting, sackcloth and ashes. He was serious about what he's coming about. He says, God, I'm troubled at this. I'm burdened about this. And God, I need answers. So he came to God seriously. And he began his prayer in verse 4, uh, praising God. He says, and I, uh, and I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. So he's giving some praise and some honor to God for his power, for his might, and for his goodness, that he has mercy toward those who keep his commandments. And then he begins in confession, okay? Just kind of going down through this quickly here. He goes into confession and he says, we have sinned. He's speaking on behalf of his entire nation. He says, we have sinned. And uh, something I'll get to here in just a minute is it amazes me as he goes through this prayer that he includes himself through all of this. We would typically uh, see it as us versus them. Daniel is the one that lived a godly life in captivity. He is the one that has served God. He is the one who has been faithful the entire time. And the rest of the people, it seems like, uh, couldn't care less. But all through this prayer, he says, we have sinned. We have done this. We have done that. We have failed to do this. And he includes himself in it. We'll get back to that in just a minute. And so in verses 5 and 6, he is confessing. We've sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedly. We've rebelled, even departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. So we, we send, you send people to warn us, and we didn't listen. That basically sums up the Old Testament, doesn't it? I think it sums, sums up our New Testament a lot of times, too. Um, but anyway, so he's confessing their sins. And so in verses 7 through 9, just to kind of sum it up, he says, uh, O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee. Okay? You are righteous, you are holy, you are good. He is giving God the glory. He is not blaming God. Isn't that what we often do? God, how could you let this happen? That's not what Daniel's doing. He says, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces. That term confusion of faces means guilt or shame. You are righteous and we should be ashamed of ourselves. 
That's simple enough, isn't it? And he continues that idea in 7 and 8 and in 9. He says, O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. God, we are guilty. Verse 10, to the Lord, or excuse me, verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. And so God is righteous. He is merciful. He is the one who is able to forgive even though we don't deserve it. And so we're seeing a trend, a theme developing here. He's saying, God, we don't deserve your mercy. You are good and we are not. You are able to forgive. You are able to have uh, mercy upon us, but it's not that we deserve your goodness or your mercy. We can carry that over to the New Testament because we are saved not by the works of righteousness that we have done, but by his grace, by his mercy, he saves us, right? And so he's still, still appealing to God in the Old Testament according to God's mercy and according to God's grace. It wasn't that they were saved by their goodness. It wasn't that they were delivered by their goodness. And Daniel knew that the people of Israel hadn't learned their lesson. They hadn't changed their ways. They hadn't turned back to God. And so Daniel is coming to God and saying, God, you are good, and we don't deserve your mercy and your grace. But at the end of this, or the end of this prayer, he says, but it would be really good if you would be merciful to us. Okay? And so he continues to confess here in verses 10 through 14. Neither have we obeyed the voice of our Lord, our God, to walk in his laws, which he set before his servants, the prophets. And he goes down and he looks at why exactly they are guilty. And he starts talking about the commandments and the covenants and the law of Moses and all of these things the people of Israel had covenanted, covenanted with God to do. And we can go back here to Leviticus, chapter number 25, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's that book of the Bible that most of us skip over when we're reading. It's the one that we get hung up on. If we try to do a Bible reading plan, we get to Leviticus, and that's where we get stuck, right? Well, Leviticus, chapter 25, in the first verses of this, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I gave you, give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years thou shalt sow uh, thy field, and six years uh, thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard, that which groweth of itself, or of its own, uh, of its own accord, of thy harvest, thou shalt not reap, neither gather the grapes of the vine undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the land. And so he institutes the Sabbath here in the beginning of chapter number 26. It says, Ye shall make you no idols, nor graven image, nor rear you up a standard, standing image. Neither shall ye set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it, uh, for I am the Lord your God. Ye shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So we see the idea of the Sabbath now added to uh, abstaining from idols. Verse 3, it says, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and your threshing shall reach into the vintage, and the vintage shall reach into the sowing time, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land in safety. And I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land, and you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword." And so at the beginning of chapter number 26, God is making a promise to the people of Israel. Uh, this is continuing from chapter number 25 with the idea of the Sabbath. Uh, and we often kind of skip over this idea of Sabbath. Sabbath was a way of exercising faith. 
The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. And so he calls the people Israel. He says, you are my people, and I am going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for your needs. I'm going to give you the things that you need. And one of the ways that you can show your faith and trust in my providence is by keeping the Sabbath. So one day out of seven, you're going to cease from your working and your rest, and you're going to trust me to take care of you, even though that you haven't worked that one day. So he says you are going to work less time, and yeah, you could work that seventh day, you could make more money, but you're going to rest and say God can provide for what I'm going to miss out on that day of work. Then the Sabbath wasn't just one day a week, it was one year out of seven. And that's what we were seeing in chapter 25. So for the nation of Israel, they were to take one day, or not one day, one year out of every seven. Every seventh year, they weren't to plant their gardens, they weren't to uh, work in their vineyards, they weren't to do anything with their harvest. They were to let the land and the laborers rest. Could you imagine having a year vacation, a year holiday for every seven years? Work for six years and take the seventh one off? That's what God prescribed to the nation of Israel. Why do we not do that? Because we still have bills to pay that seventh year, right? We still have families to feed. If you don't work that seventh year and you take a holiday that seventh year, things get left undone, right? But to the nation of Israel, God made a promise. And he says, if you will test me, if you'll try me, if you'll take that seventh year off, I will make your fields prosper in such a way that you won't miss that year's labor. You see where that's a test of faith? Could you imagine the Israelites coming to that seventh year and saying, if I don't plant my fields now, then come harvest time, we're going to be running out of food. We're not going to have enough. And then what's going to happen to us? And so it was a matter of, do I take God at his word or no? And so what is the key to the 70 years they were in Babylon, and how is this all interrelated? Well, the Bible tells us elsewhere that they spent a year in Babylon for every Sabbath they didn't keep. So for 70 Sabbaths, 70 times 7 years, for 490 years, they were in the land and didn't let it rest. So God says, I'm going to let it lay fallow. I'm going to let the land rest for the 70 years you didn't give it to me, to the land. You didn't trust me with it. So that's where that 70 years comes. But if you continue in chapter number 26 of Leviticus, uh, verse number 14, it says, But if you will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that you will not do all my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I will also do this unto you. I will even appoint over you a terror and consumption and burning of you. And he goes down through the rest of chapter number 26, telling about uh, if you don't keep my commandments, if you don't let the land rest, if you don't give it its Sabbath, if you don't turn away from idols, then I'm going to bring chastisements against you. And if you still don't listen, I'm going to allow your enemies to come, dispossess you from your land, and while you're carried away into captivity, then the land will have its rest. And so we see that in verse 32, And I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies which shall dwell therein shall be astonished at it, and I will scatter you among the heathen and draw you out, and draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste, then shall the land enjoy her Sabbath as long as it lieth desolate, and you be as your enemy's land, and you be in your enemy's land, excuse me. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbath. And then we have a promise that, remember I said, not just uh, judgment, but also uh, we find that there is restoration as well. Verse 40 of Leviticus chapter 26 says, If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, which are with their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and that they have walked contrary unto me, and that I have also walked contrary unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled and, then, and they then accept the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac 
and also my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember, and I will remember the land. The land also shall be left of them, and shall enjoy her Sabbath while she lies desolate without them, and they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity, because even because they despise my judgments, and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And yet for all that, when they be not in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them, to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought. And so he says in this, uh, just for the sake of time, he says if they refuse to keep the Sabbath, if they bow down to idols, if they disobey my commandments and my covenants, then I will allow their enemies to carry them away captivity. But then whenever they accept their punishment, they turn away from their sin, they call out to me, I will remember them and I will bring them back into their land. Okay? So that was the promise in Leviticus. That was the covenant. Jeremiah tells them, you have violated your covenant with God. You haven't listened to him. He's going to allow what he promised to happen to happen. And it's going to be for 70 years. And then Daniel, and I know I've been a long time kind of going through this and giving the background and the backstory for this. But Daniel has been studying all these things. And... Uh, unfortunately for Daniel, he didn't have the Bible laid out like we do today. Unfortunately for Daniel, he didn't have thousands of years of expositional scriptures and writing on scriptures and cross-references and all these things to find it. Daniel was doing all the hard work himself. And so he had been studying this for years, and he saw where Leviticus says, if you turn away from me, I'm going to bring you into captivity until you turn back to me, and then I will give you back your land. He saw in Jeremiah that it was promised that this was going to happen for 70 years. And he saw that the 70 years was almost up. And so he is confessing the sins of his people. Wasn't that the promise of the, the Levitical covenant back in Leviticus chapter 26? If you will accept the punishment, if you will acknowledge your sins and confess your sins and repent from your sins, and Daniel is doing this as a representative on the behalf of all of his people here. And some people have said that it was Daniel's uh, prayer here that we're reading in Scripture that brought them out of captivity, that fulfilled the requirement, and God had mercy upon his people. Almost like whenever uh, the people under Moses had turned away from God and had sinned and different things, and God says, I'm going to destroy all of Israel and Moses spoke up, and he says, don't do it. And he uses some of the very same arguments as Daniel. He says, the people aren't worthy, and yes, they deserve punishment and destruction, but they are your people that are called by your name, and if you destroy them completely, then what's all the heathen going to say? Then where is the testimony of your name? What about your glory? What about your honor? Because everyone is going to say, the God of Israel wasn't able to deliver them. The God of Israel wasn't stronger than their enemies. The God of Israel allowed them to be carried away captive or die in the wilderness. And so Daniel is saying a lot of the same things as what Moses did. And so as we look at this prayer, he's looking back through these things, through the covenant with Moses, through the way that God dealt with the people back then, the promises of Jeremiah, and he comes to the conclusion here uh, in the second half of uh, verse 13, he says, Yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works. God, you warned us, you dealt with us, you chastised us, we still didn't turn back to you. And so he says, the Lord our God is righteous in all his works. So he's acknowledging, saying, we've sinned. God, you've done exactly what you told us you were going to do. You are righteous in the judgment that you've brought down. And so that brings us to verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt uh, with a mighty hand and has gotten thee renowned, as at this day we have uh, sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, 
thy holy mountain because of our sins for and for the iniquities of our fathers Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. So he says, God, it's not because we are righteous, it's not because we are good, but because your glory, your honor, and your name are suffering. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? God, we need to come out of captivity. We need to be delivered from this so that it doesn't become a bad testimony on God and on his glory. Verse 17, now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. Verse 18 is similar, and he says uh, in the last half of it, for we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. He says it's not because we are good, but because you are merciful. And that brings us down to verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake. So Daniel desired God's exaltation and not his own. He desired God's name to be exalted, not relief for the people. Okay? And so to just to bring all of this together that we've looked at in this, uh, in this chapter so far, Daniel was perplexed because of the 70 years almost being up. He says, God, we have sinned. We haven't gotten right yet, but the time frame is almost up. This looks really bad upon your name. Uh, people aren't going to uh, see you as the God that you are, the power that you have, the mercy that you have, the righteousness that you have, as long as your people are in captivity. So God, it's not because of any goodness that we have, but for your name and for your glory, will you please bring us out of captivity because we can't glorify you, we can't praise you in Babylon. Okay? And so this is his prayer to God through all of this. And so God hears his prayer, God answers his prayer, and within just a few years after this, uh, Cyrus the king, which uh, Isaiah prophesied about, Cyrus raises up, and in his first year, he gives the command for the people of Israel to go back to Israel, for Babylon to let them go, for them to be free to not just go back to their land, but for them to also rebuild the city there in Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and all of those things. And so with his prayer, I just want to bring a few applications from this, because I know we've we've kind of went through uh, a lot of more technical stuff with the, the laws back in Leviticus and with the prophecies in Jeremiah, with Daniel's trouble that he had in his heart and his mind because of the situation of the people. But there were several things that stood out to me about Daniel's prayer that I think apply to us. One thing that amazed me, and I, I uh, brought it out earlier, was that Daniel didn't set himself apart from the people. He didn't say, God, I've been good, but they've been bad. But he included himself. Over and over again, he says, we have done this. We have done that. And we see a huge difference in his attitude from what ours often is. We go to the New Testament, we find that the Pharisee goes up to the temple, and how does he pray? I thank you that I'm not like this publican. Right? You remember that story? And if we're not careful, we end up having that same attitude of seeing ourselves as better than others. But Daniel, even though he was a prophet of God, even though we can clearly see that he was a righteous man, a good man, a man of principle, an honorable man that God had blessed and gave great uh, abilities and things to, Daniel still was able to say, God, we have sinned. We've came short. God help our people. And so he put it, put it together with that. And so he was humble and he included himself. He didn't exalt himself or put himself up on a pedestal. And I think whenever we come to the Lord in prayer, we would be much better off if we didn't see ourselves so high. We didn't see ourselves as so great because honestly, there's not a one of us 
that deserve salvation. There's not a one of us that deserve the goodness and blessings of God. And so for us to be condemning in our attitude toward others is not right. And so if Daniel could group himself in with all the rest of the rebelling Jews, then I don't see any reason why uh, we should exalt ourselves and try to pump ourselves up and tell God how good we are. Okay? Another thing that I find about Daniel in chapter number 9 is that even though he had served God all these years, and even though he was a prophet of God and was holy and righteous and all these things, he was still a constant student of Scripture, and he was fervent in prayer. Okay, He's up 80 years old now, but we find that he is still praying. He is still studying Scripture. And these were things that was important for him. And we want to have that walk with God that Daniel does. We want to be able to have that testimony that Daniel does. But what was it that gave Daniel that walk and that testimony? It was that he was constantly trusting in God. He was seeking to walk with God, to obey God, to be in his word, to uh, continue to seek him in prayer all throughout his life. And that's what gave him, what made him what he was. It's almost like the person who wants to be a skilled musician, but they don't want to put the practice in, right? We want to have the walk that Daniel had. We want to have the testimony that Daniel had, but we see how Daniel got that. And we're not going to get that unless we do like Daniel and purpose in our heart not to defile ourselves. Unless we are willing to put time in in studying the scriptures and looking at the word of God and seeing what does the word say. Unless we're willing to come to God in prayer, even when it's not convenient, even whenever it's not something that is uh, even accepted or allowed by, by the government there. Daniel was still praying even whenever it was illegal to do so. And so these are ways that we draw near unto God in a way that we build this life like Daniel had, but it doesn't just happen. Uh, another thing that we find here is that Daniel was constantly acknowledging God's power and God's sovereignty over things. And I think we need to constantly remind ourselves, God doesn't need reminded, but we need to remind ourselves that God is more than enough to handle any situation, be it in our lives personally or in the world, because there's so many things in this world that seem to be so big, seem to be things that we have no ability, no power over, but we need to remind ourselves that God is still in control. God is still in charge. And so uh, in this prayer, he's acknowledging God's power and God's sovereignty. Uh, as he was praying, he was appealing to God's word and God's nature rather than his own goodness or rather than Israel's goodness. And so the reason I bring that out is because the basis for his plea wasn't because anyone deserved it. There's none of us that deserve anything from God. If we're coming to God and we're saying, God, look at all I've done. Look, I've earned this or you owe this to me. That wasn't Daniel's attitude. But he says, God, I know that you are a good God. I know that you are a merciful God. I know you are a, uh, a righteous God. I know that you are a powerful God. I know all of these things about you. And then his appeal wasn't for the goodness of man. It wasn't for the deliverance of man. He says, God, your name is at stake here. The Bible says, whatsoever we do, do all things for the glory of God, right? Whenever it talks about prayer, it says you ask and you have not because you ask basically that you can consume it of your own lust. In other words, you're pray praying selfishly. Is God give me this for me rather than God, this needs to happen for you to be glorified. You see a difference in attitude and perspective there? Another thing that I can bring out from this is that obedience to God's word brings blessings, while disobedience brings chastisement and brings suffering. That is what we saw in uh, Leviticus chapter 25 and 26. I know we're no longer under the law, but there is a principle in place here. If you live life according to God's word, if you live God's way, you'll have God's blessings. If you live contrary to God's word and contrary to God's way, then it's not that God is uh, throwing lightning and thunderbolts at you because of these things. But instead, the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. Are you familiar with that passage? The way of the transgressor is hard. 
And so whenever we live contrary to God's word, we shouldn't be surprised or upset whenever things go wrong. Put it this way, if you have in your relationships with others, if in a marriage or in dating or these things, you approach it with God's principles at heart and you do it God's way, you can expect God's blessing. If you throw God's word and his way out the window and go about fulfilling your own way and going uh, and approaching marriage and approaching relationships according to the world's way and by the lust of the flesh and all these things, don't be surprised when it blows up because God's way is right and it is good. And he has put it there because it keeps us out of a lot of problems. It keeps us out of a lot of those troubles. Uh, if we're operating a business or if we're going about uh, working a job or whatnot and we go by God's principles of his word of honesty and of integrity and of character and things, God will bless it. But if we go by the world's way of lying and stealing and cheating and conniving and manipulating, guess what? Whenever things go astray, whenever things are not going well for you, then you can't blame God for it. And so Daniel here says, you warned us. You told us the right way to go. We refused it. Trouble came, and it's our fault, not yours. You're righteous, and we are to blame. You warned us. You led us the right direction. You showed us the way to go. We rejected it, and here we are in Babylon. Yeah, this is what we get. Okay? And then the last thing that I want to bring out, and I'm out of time, is that, and this is kind of what I was doing as I was going over the, the context of this, that Daniel's big events were spread out through the entirety of Daniel's life. That our Christian walk, our Christian growth, walking with God is a lifelong process. It's not a string of uh, big important events or milestones, but instead it is a uh, just a slow, often gradual, sometimes mundane process that we don't even realize is going on. Uh, but we find that most of these things in Daniel's life, most of the periods of greatness came with maturity and with experience. And all of that takes time. I can't express enough that Daniel was an old man as we're reading about this. He has a long a long and continual uh, track record, I guess I could say, of faithfulness. He's not seeing every day God doing great big things and giving him dreams and visions and all of this every single day. Those were the exception, not the rule. But Daniel was faithful through all of it, and we see that God was faithful to Daniel through all of it, even in Babylon. And so for us as Christians, we need to follow the leader. We need to trust the shepherd. We need to continue following him and being faithful to him and allow him to chart the course, allow him to determine the path, allow him to uh, bring the opportunities and to uh, for him to prosper, for him to promote us rather than thinking that there is some kind of a, uh, a magic pill for Christian growth or that there is some kind of an easy route for uh, Christianity. I think a lot of times for us as Christians, we think that there should be almost instantaneous growth, that we should uh, get it figured out early on, and it's almost like there's a, a great spring forward and then a kind of just a constant... Um, put it this way, okay? Just the illustration that came to my, my mind. Sometimes we wrongly think that the Christian life is like a, uh, a trip on a plane, okay? And what I mean by that, you get on a plane, immediately when you leave the airport, what do you do? Shoot straight for the sky, right? And then you get to altitude and you cruise. Isn't that how a lot of people think it is? 
I get saved, I'm going to all of a sudden be transformed, I'm going to shoot toward the clouds, I'm going to be doing great, and then I'm just going to cruise through the rest of my life. But that's not the way that the Christian life goes. The way a Christian life should go should be a constant, gradual growth process, just like the maturing of a, a person from a baby all the way up until the time that they uh, take their last breath. There is a process, an aging process, right? A maturing process. And it's continual, it is gradual, and that's the way the Christian life is meant to be. And that's what we see in Daniel's life as well. We can focus on his big moments and say, boy, that would be great. But there were decades in between those big moments, right? And so that's something for us to learn as well. So with that being said, does anyone have any questions or comments on what we've looked at uh, in Daniel tonight? No one's got anything. Let's go ahead. We'll go to Lord in prayer. We'll call it a night. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. And we do thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for this passage in Daniel, Lord. I know I've, I went into several things uh, back in Scripture and whatnot. I hope the, the points have been conveyed uh, clearly, Lord. I just pray that you would uh, be with your people and just uh, help them, Lord, to, to see from your word the way that you work and the way that you're uh, constantly at work, Lord. And help us, Lord, just to trust your way and to trust your plan, Lord. And help us, Lord, to uh, determine to be faithful, whether anyone else is, Lord. We just thank you for all you do. And we just pray in Jesus' name. Amen.